Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, help us. Send the Spirit of God. That we would understand the power of the gospel. We ask this in your mighty name. Amen. Well, please have a seat. In his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, Desmond Tutu, the former Archbishop of Cape Town, tells a story that he learned while chairing South Africa's post-apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As you know, apartheid, it means apartheid, was the brutal system of segregation implemented in South Africa in 1948 that remained in place until the democratic elections of 1996. Under apartheid, the minority white population dictated what jobs the majority black Africans could hold, where they could live, where they could travel. In some circumstances, such as the one I'm about to read to you, whole villages were displaced to make way for industry or migrating white homeowners sometimes to catastrophic effect. In Tutu's own words, he wrote, there was a certain man, a gardener in Johannesburg. He had built himself a nice home in one of the villages. One day it was announced that his home village was to be demolished and the community moved elsewhere. The gardener asked for one favor, which was granted him. He wanted to demolish the house which he had built so painstakingly over the years himself. The following morning, he was found hanging from a tree. He simply could not take it any longer. The American theologian James Cohn has written eloquently on the relationship between the absurdity of racial injustice and hopelessness What can we say, he asks, to a community whose suffering and humiliation is beyond rational explanation? What can we say to that community? It's at the point that our suffering defies rational explanation, at the point that Reinhold Niebuhr said it becomes absurd. When our suffering becomes absurd, that's when we lose hope. It's at this point that we despair. Who can blame this gardener confronted with the absurdity and hopelessness of his situation that he just couldn't take it any longer? There are populations that are systemically subjected to this kind of hopelessness as the story of the gardener makes clear and the scriptures place a special burden upon people of faith to defend the vulnerable for this kind of systemic evil. Nevertheless, 
even though some of us are better insulated from this feature of human existence than others, each of us will eventually experience the kind of hopelessness that is born from suffering that defies rational explanation. Jobs can be unexpectedly lost, upending the stability of the home and the hopes and dreams of the future. Sons and daughters who were warm and friendly can develop out of the blue, I've seen it, mental illness or addictions that makes them withdrawn and unpredictable. The double tragedy is it's completely out of their hands and against their will. A surprising and terrifying diagnosis can confront the patient with the unplanned prospect of death. Every fall, hurricanes loom. Famine and pandemics and war threaten. So each of us is confronted with the fact of human suffering. Each of us is confronted with a suffering that defies rational expectation. It's inflicted especially upon the poor and the vulnerable, but ultimately it imposes itself on everyone. It is a sad fact of our common humanity. Today we observe the suffering and death of Jesus of Nazareth, who Christians believe was a good man, but not just a good man. He was a wise teacher, but not just a wise teacher. Christians believe he was in fact God and that he was clothed in human flesh. Christians believe that Jesus was God incarnate. It's a compound word derived from the Latin word in, which means almost identical to our English word in. Incarnus meaning flesh. To believe that Jesus was God incarnate is to assert that Jesus is God in flesh in our common humanity. Now if that's true, then the senseless suffering that defies explanation, that has become a sad fact of our shared humanity, has now become a sad fact of God's own life. During our brief time together, in what's more a meditation than a sermon, I focus on just nine words, sometimes called the cry of dereliction, which were some of the last spoken by Jesus as he died on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew and Mark record these disturbing nine words, and they are disturbing, in very similar ways. Around noon, right now, you know, so much of the Christian life is abstract. So we try to historicize it. We've made a calculated guess on the birth of Jesus, but we're not sure. When was he baptized? When did he heal the man with the shriveled hand in the synagogue? We don't know. But as you enter into Holy Week, the dates... And even the times become more concrete. It was about this time, 2,000 years ago, and it was this day, that Jesus was led to the hill called Golgotha. 
where he was crucified. Some three hours later, the gospelers tell us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lahi, Lahi, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John Calvin makes the observation that the New Testament is written in Greek. The words of Jesus are written in Greek. But this disturbing cry of dereliction is given to us in Aramaic. Almost as if the gospelers wanted us to hear the anguish of Jesus Christ in his own words. How are we to understand the disturbing cry of Jesus from the cross? Well, at the popular level, there are two ways of dealing with this, both of which I'm afraid are wrong. Some take this cry as evidence that the father turned his face away from his own son at the moment of his greatest need. Others take this cry as evidence that the father turned toward his son in wrath and anger. Each of these come from a good idea, a biblical idea that Jesus took on the sins of the world. And so it must be that God either turns away from his son in judgment or towards him in anger. In either case, wrote one scholar recently, the cry of dereliction constitutes a very hefty charge against the fatherhood of God. But there are good grounds for rejecting both of these popular takes, and we reject them because of the words of Jesus himself. First, Jesus himself said, He who sent me, the Father, he's always with me. He has not left me alone. That's John chapter 8, verse 29. In a prayer to his father, the night that he was betrayed, he said, You, Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. John chapter 17, verse 22. And to his own disciples, shortly before he was arrested, Jesus said, A time is coming and has come. When you will be scattered, each to your own home, and you will leave me alone, but I will not be alone. My Father's with me. So from these scriptures and others, the vast majority of Christian theologians, Roman Catholic theologians, Orthodox theologians, Protestant theologians, have rejected that the Father turned away from Christ either out of neglect or turned towards him in anger. And so we take Jesus at his own words. We don't call Jesus a liar to tidy up our theological riddles of Good Friday. When Christ says, I'm not alone, the Father's with me, we believe him. How are we to understand this cry of dereliction then, whereby the Lord Jesus expresses a sense of God-forsakenness, and yet we believe that what he says is true. I'm not going to be alone. Eleanor Stump, she's a professor of medieval philosophy at St. Louis University, helps us understand how such a thing is possible with an example from Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings. She writes... A person in great psychological or physical pain can experience as absent even those gathered around him in love to care for him. 
In The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's description of Frodo's psychic state after he's wounded by the Black Riders makes this point in a sensitive and evocative manner. Something about that wound causes Frodo to be intensely aware of the minds of the Black Riders and to find the rest of the world fading or invisible to his view. In the anguish he experiences then, Frodo feels very lost and alone with the Black Riders. When he finally comes to himself again, he is surprised to find that his friends have been with him the entire time. It was Frodo who in his suffering lost the ability to share attention with his friends. But in his experience, they had disappeared from him. Anyone who has soothed someone in great pain by saying, it's all right, it's all right, I'm here, understands the insightful accuracy of Tolkien's story in these scenes depicting Frodo. Jesus was under psychological and physical pain that he experienced on the cross. His suffering and his humiliation defied rational explanation and he lost the ability to share attention with friends. He lost the ability to be soothed by someone because of his great pain. He was made to feel very lost and very alone. The father could have said, it's all right, I'm here, but the son would not have been able to hear it. There's a profound point to be made here for those whose suffering and humiliation has made them feel very lost and alone. Very few people, if anyone, knows what you are going through when you are going through a period of suffering and humiliation that defies explanation. But God knows. God knows through the Son's enfleshed experience of absurdity, irrationality, and hopelessness on the cross. Here's how one theologian put it. When God becomes man in Jesus of Nazareth, he not only enters into the finitude of man, but in his death on the cross, also enters into the situation of man's God-forsakenness. He humbles himself, and he takes upon himself eternal death, the eternal death of the godless and the God-forsaken, so that all the godless and all the God-forsaken can experience communion with him. How is it that someone experiencing God-forsakenness can have communion with God? Well, feelings of fear and abandonment and despair are hard to own up to. I have experienced feelings of abandonment and despair in the past two weeks more intensely than I've experienced them in the last 20 years. It has been very hard to own up to. We have had a hard week down the road. But there's a culture about Christian people. There's a culture about Christian people that says, we always need to look on the sunny side. 
We always need to have a sense of optimism about us, something about Easter, a little bit of hope. And so when inevitably we experience these emotions of fear and despair, we experience them in a lonely way because we think we're not supposed to feel them. What will someone think of us? What will you think of me if I tell you I feel abandoned? Rob has lost his faith. That's why I would never share it. And so we experience these things in a very lonely way, in no communion with anyone. You can translate communion in a variety of ways. Friendship is the way I like to translate it, but it's based on these other translations of sharing and participation of which friendship is a part. So many of us suffer alone, so we have no communion with anyone. So it's astonishing to me that I could talk to Jesus about feelings of abandonment and forsakenness. It's astonishing that I could have communion with God about God forsakenness. Why can I have communion with God about God forsakenness? Because Jesus in flesh felt abandoned and God forsaken, could not see that his father was with him. And God willingly entered into this painful experience common to humanity. Why did God willfully enter into this experience common to humanity? Because he wants to be in communion with you. He wants to be in friendship with you. He wants to share his life with you. He wants you to share your life with him. That's why he entered so deeply into it. And of course, there's something that he cannot share with us. But it's very important we point this out to understand the fullness of God's desire for communion. He suffers differently than you and I do. He suffers in a unique way in the common humanity. He suffers on the cross as an innocent man. As we become aware that Jesus suffers, at the moment that we understand we do have communion with Him, we also understand that in part, the suffering that gives us the ability to say we have a shared experience. It's also the reason that it's different. Because I learned from Jesus on the cross that suffering and pain is not just something that I endure. It's not just something that lands on me senseless. It's also something I cause other people. The point is acutely made during the Holy Week liturgies. It was made in the song that we opened our service with. Alas, my trees in Jesus hath done thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. Our responses during the Passion reading have always made me uncomfortable. How uncomfortable do I feel and do you feel saying crucify him, crucify him. Away with him, away with him. 
And so in the suffering of Jesus, he's very much like us, but in the suffering of Jesus, he's not like us. Because the great difference between him and us is I have contributed to the senseless suffering of this world. Jesus never did. When given many opportunities, he never did. And in his suffering, he experiences it as a man. But it's God in flesh on the cross. Today is a day where sometimes we think about the wrath of God being satisfied, but sometimes I wonder if we might have that backwards. My most recent reading through Paul's letter to the Romans, I was struck at the phrase wrath and enmity. There's a wrath that comes from God, but every other time that Paul uses that word enmity and hostility, it's not God's enmity and hostility towards sinners. Every other time in the remaining 15 chapters, it's humankind's enmity and hostility towards God. And is not Good Friday, if nothing else, a full exhaustion of the enmity and hostility of humankind towards God himself? How do you overcome enmity and hostility that brings about such senseless suffering? To answer that, I'll draw your attention to one of the other last words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And now, God's desire for communion with you in the intensity of your senseless suffering is complete and the extending of his arm as the world is exhausting its hostility on him he extends forgiveness to the world and by his decision is in communion with you not because of anything you or I have done but what he has done we have peace with him because he's decided to have peace with us. And if you want to know what it looks like to extend love and peace in the face of such hostility, look at the man upon the cross who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We pray for those who are suffering. For those whose suffering makes no sense. And I pray, Lord God, that if they tell no one else, they would tell Jesus of Nazareth.
And we pray, Jesus, that we would be moved by your intense desire to be in communion with our whole self, even those parts that contribute to the senseless suffering of others. And we pray that the peace extended from the cross would help us lay our hostility down. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.